Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer. For years to come, try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Wayetu Moore talks about her debut novel, She Would Be King. Wayeto Moore is the founder of One More Book and is a graduate of Howard University, Columbia University and the University of Southern California. She teaches at the City University of New York's John Jay College and currently lives in Brooklyn and her debut novel, She Would Be King, is what we're going to be talking about today. Wayeto, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. Can I ask you how you would describe the novel? The novel is a retelling of Liberian history through three characters with supernatural ability. And you spent the early part of your childhood in Liberia yourself, didn't you? And then left when you were five. What happened? Yeah, so my family moved to America when I was five years old because of the Civil War. Uh, My mother was already in, in America. She was at Columbia pursuing a Fulbright scholarship. So she was able to go and get us out. And um, we moved around quite a bit. And we settled in Texas when I was eight. So I was actually raised in the American South in a suburb outside of Houston. Um, and I, I lived there until about 17, until I left again for school. So so yeah, that's in a nutshell, uh, the chronology of, of my family's migration. And what do you remember, if anything, of your time in living in Monrovia? I remember quite a bit. I mean, I, I we had a very happy childhood. It was very stable. Uh, even after my mom left, there were family relatives who came and helped my dad to take care of us, my grandmother included. So it was a happy childhood. And even during the war, I think my father and my grandmother did what they could to maintain our childhood and preserve our innocence in a sense um and so even though i do have some traumatic and very harsh memories from the war i was i would say mostly protected and in that way i consider myself lucky because my my dad went out of his way to just say oh you know we're 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 gonna go see your mom we're going to see your mom so that's that's what we understood of our escape was that we were just going to go see my mother and of course, that alleviated the stress you can imagine being suddenly uprooted from one's home would have on a five-year-old. So, 
so yes, I mean, there was there are memories that I have that I think stem from the very trauma of being uprooted in the way that we were. Um, but before the more traumatic memories, I, I, I do have very amicable and wonderful recollections of my childhood in Liberia. Now, this story is inspired in part by Liberian folk stories. And, and at the beginning, you talk about a particular one about an old woman and a cat. Tell us Yes, yeah. Yeah, when we were when we were growing up, my mother, my grandmother, they would use aphorisms sometimes to scare us. Um, and one of the particular ones that my grandmother and my mother used is they would say, you know, be kind to cats. Don't hum up cats, they would say, because there was an old woman who beat her cat to death and the cat's ghost jumped to the top of her roof and her house fell down and it killed her. So they said, you know, they do not, no matter what, you be kind to cats because remember the old woman. And so when I began to write and explore African fiction in an African context on the continent, I wanted to really flesh out one of these these myths that my mother and grandmother would say. So I wanted to give this cat a personality and the old woman a name. And so I did that. And after 20 pages or so, I became curious about well, what happens in a village after the ghost of a cat kills the, his, his previous owner and abuser. And that's where the heroine was born. And then I began to explore the superstitious superstitions around her native group. And then, of course, when she's exiled, I then start to think about the time and place and what Liberia was like in a time like that when she was exiled. And that's when she meets the settlers. But in order to tell the story of the settlers, I needed to leave Liberia. And that's what took me to the United States and to the Caribbean because Liberia's history is really made dynamic by all of the identities that that comprise the Republic. And that's the 16 indigenous groups of which the heroine is from, freed blacks and former slaves from America who emigrated to the region and called it Liberia in the early 19th century and freed blacks and former slaves from the Caribbean, mainly Barbados, who emigrated to the region in the mid to late 19th century, all the way to the early 20th century or so. Um, and, And so all three of those groups find themselves there. And of course, colonialism and imperialism are still going on. On the rest of the continent, and slavery is is still going on in, in the rest of the Western world for other Black people. And so they have a little pocket of freedom, and they're trying to make sense of it and trying to make sense of each other and what it means to have a Black republic. At that time, it was the second in the world after Haiti. And so, yeah, it was, it was a massive exploration of that dynamic and then also wanting to really speak to some of the nuances that would stem from creating a republic, right? And during that time in world history and some of the subtleties that we don't really, or I wasn't, I wasn't raised hearing too much about, even though Liberian history is very much American history and is linked to explorations of black identity. I, I didn't read about Liberia in my public school books. I heard about it at home, of course. My parents did what they could to make sure that we were tethered to our home culture. But I would say information on Liberia was largely missing. So when I became an artist, it was the first place that I went to. Um, we're going to come back to, I want to work through the three main characters of the book as, 
as we go and, and and after that we'll talk a bit more about the history you know sort of where Liberia came from um but before we do like you talked about the the folk stories and the the superstitions um and in the book you know you you go further than superstitions there is elements of of the supernatural included mm-hmm. um one part of that i don't know i don't give too much away i guess but there's another character in the book there's a narrative voice that follows right through the book and sometimes intrudes sometimes intercedes and you know and and comments on what on what's going on and i wanted to talk about that overall narrative voice in the book yeah sure so initially the book was written in third person and i ended up changing it to first person and making one of the characters the narrator because i wanted to to stay true to the vi form of storytelling which for me always when my mother started a story she would say oh the oma say um, or the opa say, and the oma and opa is just a way of saying an old woman or an old man. And so stories always seem to come from an ancestor. So I wanted it to be from an ancestor. I played around with actually making the heroine a narrator, and I settled on the character I did because she was already someone who had become an ancestor, obviously initially unbeknownst to her. So um, I was able to then uh, work the book to where I had confidence that it was aligned with the form of storytelling that I was raised hearing and that I was exposed to. So that was the the thinking behind that decision. I wanted the story to be told by a Black woman, somebody who could relate to the heroine's story and understand what the coupled beauty and asymmetry of her existence, especially during that time, would be like and would feel like. And also someone who was matriarchal because all of the characters in many ways um, have these tense, short-lived or in Bess's case, traumatic relationships with their mothers. And so the narrator served in many ways as that surrogate for all of them. And as well as the, you know, the elements of the, of the supernatural and stories being like a part of a, a sort of storytelling tradition yeah absolutely i mean i didn't i have conversations when i'm interviewed we talk a lot about the genre of magical realism and Mm -hmm. how there is a a popularization it seems suddenly of african stories that are being written and published in that genre and it's important to also to to remind everyone and and as part of the conversation just um, talk about how these storytelling forms aren't new um it's just that i think in many ways they were they were suppressed or repressed specifically during colonialism and during slavery as being somehow unchristian or indecent to tell stories that engaged with the invisible dimension and the supernatural and so i do think in many ways um these storytellers are returning to that form. And I know for me, it wasn't a conscious choice that I made where I said, okay, I want to write a book about superheroes who happen to be Liberian. It was, it was um, something that came organic to me. I wanted to tell Liberia's story and the way that I chose to tell it was just the way that I was introduced to the storytelling form. And I'm also reminded of as, as well as being, as you said, it's, this is a, it's an old storytelling form using those elements, but also in some respects, I'm, I'm thinking of a conversation I had uh, last year with uh, Jasmine Ward. We talked about her book, um, 
Sing Unburied Sing, which has ghosts in it, and other mm-hmm. books like, you know, Beloved, or, you know, even yes. thinking about, like, Colson Whitehead's Underground, Underground. Railroad. Yeah, um, yeah. Is there, in some respects, using elements of fantasy or the supernatural is also a way of enabling you to write about subject matter that is horrible, that is often violent and horrific. Well, I mean, the the other side, the other side of that statement or that argument is perhaps black existence or living in black bodies in the world sometimes seems fantastic. <laughs> like the things that you go through on a day to day basis or the things that you encounter, sometimes it does seem just otherworldly. Like, wait, did that happen? And if I'm talking to my friends who perhaps are non black about these things that perhaps have happened or the interactions that I've had or people's responses to me they seem surprised but it's like no this is my reality so perhaps we can go even further um and say that just being a black body in some instances walking this earth you do encounter things that are fantastic and seem otherworldly and seem just unbelievable like how can this happen or how can this person say this and so part of your existence and part of navigating the world is accepting that unbelievable things will happen and so that perhaps manifests and surfaces in our art millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Wayatu Moore, and we're talking about her debut novel, She Would Be King. And Wayatu, I said I wanted to go through the, the main characters, so let's talk about uh, Bessa, first of all. Mm-hmm. Um, she's an indigenous Vi person growing up in Liberia, as was. I want to talk about 
what happens to her. It's not giving too much away of the story because it's all pretty much up front. But let's talk about what happens to her as a child in the village and, you know, that, that idea of the setup of the village, I guess, and, and why right. they think she's a witch. Right. So uh, Bessa, the heroine, is born on the day that an old woman kills her cat and the cat's ghost resurrects and jumps on the woman's house and kills the woman. And so out of superstition, because of the circumstances around the old woman's death, the village then then says that the day is cursed. And because Bessa, the heroine, is born on that day, she is then cursed. And it is ritual of this village that on the 13th birthday of anyone who's designated to be cursed, um, they'll go to the forest. And generally when they deem them outcasts and exile them to the forest like that in their teenage years, they die. It just so happens that Bessa, who is exiled and she's sent to the forest, she doesn't die. So around her 18th or 19th birthday or so, she returns to, to, the, to the village. And then by, by this time, they respect the fact that she has come back and, and pretty much leave her alone. She's still ostracized, doesn't have any friends or visitors, and no one really speaks to her um, because of her bewitching presence. But those are the circumstances around her village's understanding of her, her village's designation of her being cursed, and then the, the reality of, of the fact that she actually is immortal. Um, she is the immortal character because I did want to speak to the fact that there are about 54 countries on the continent of Africa, but unfortunately, none of these countries, maybe perhaps Ethiopia to some extent, but none of these countries had native input in the designation of their borderlines, right? It was external. All of these borders were designated by men in Belgium in 1884 um, and then for Liberia people in Liberia or people in America and so I wanted to speak to the fact that if these lines are ever redrawn or redesignated what will remain true and will always last is these ethnic groups people like the Vi people like the Fulani people like the Yoruba people like the Igbo um, and wanted to speak to what I metaphorically navigated as as immortality um, I wanted I wanted to pay homage to that, and then June Day, the next character, he is a slave in Virginia, and during his first encounter with an overseer, he realizes that his skin does not penetrate bullets. Um, he is unaffected by blades and whips, and he, because of this inhuman strength, he escapes the plantation and ends up on a boat back to Liberia. Um, and June Day's strength is really in conversation with the strength and the resilience of African Americans. I think I understand as an African immigrant being raised in the United States that I have tremendous privilege that was uh, won and, and fought for by African Americans when my, my family was largely missing from, from those movements. And so just speaking to that liberation movement and how the African-American struggle in America really paved a way for many resistance struggles and social, social movements around the world for disenfranchised people. And the, the third character, Norman Arrigan, he is the son of a Jamaican Maroon and a British scholar. 
and he can make himself invisible. And so he also ends up on a boat um, actually heading for Sierra Leone, which is Britain's iteration of Liberia. It's the colony that they created for freed slaves in Britain and the UK. Um, but he stops in Liberia, and that's where he meets June Day and Bessa, and they end up, as I said before, making sense of this new republic, um, fighting the remaining slave traders, and 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 really finding their way through the new systems of stratification that have formed with the settlers' arrival. Um, I wanted to ask you to talk about what you talk about, Norman Aragon. Um, who were the the Maroons? The Maroons were slaves who managed to successfully revolt against their British slave owners um, with two wars. And they escaped up the mountains in Jamaica. And there are still Maroon colonies in, in Jamaica to this day. And what the British did is they signed a treaty with the Maroons that essentially um, stated that the Maroons could maintain their freedom but they could not accept any more slaves up the mountain. And so in some instances from my research, they would, if, if, if slaves from the inland plantations tried to escape up the mountains, they would drag them back down and get paid. But there were some Maroon colonies who accepted escaped slaves. And, and then when the British found this out, they began to ship some of them to, to Freetown, to Sierra Leone. Um, and so the Maroons, I wanted to include them in the story, even though most of, as I stated before, the Caribbean population in Liberia, they're actually from Barbados. But it was important to me to include in the story a tale of a successful rebellion against slavery. Um, I think this, the story is one where I was always um, in conversation with the idea of rebellion by black bodies against their captors as opposed to being saved, like in what context and in what situations were they able to save themselves and be the victors of their own own communities. And I think the Maroons were an excellent example of that. I wanted to go back to, you mentioned in the first half about the formation of Liberia and, you know, the various groupings of of people that I guess did a sort of, you know, reverse diaspora back to back to that country at the same time like indigenous groups as they were like the Vi for instance in the beginning of the book you talk about the Vi coming to the area that became Liberia at some point in the past you talk about you know how they discovered the village that that Bessa grows up in and you know how there was signs of people being there before so there's all of these various groupings of people over different periods of time coming to this area. What sort of tensions were there at the, at the time when these, when the sort of the colony was starting to grow with people coming over from America, people coming from the Caribbean, various different sort of ethnic groupings already existing there? What, what, what sort of things, how did that go at the time? Right. So the, the, the Vimu, there were tremendous migrations and waves of migrations on the continent of Africa for hundreds of years. And the Vi people arrived in um, a few hundred years before this story takes place. And during that time, the wars that they had, because there, there are thousands of ethnic groups across the continent, and there were skirmishes over land. Um, there were kingdoms. Of course, we know um, the city of Benin. We know the Ghana Empire, the Songhai Empire. 
Um, we know the Dahomey. And so there were empires that existed. There were wars that existed between smaller ethnic groups and larger ethnic groups because there was always, as you can find in most um, advanced societies, struggles for land. And so at the time, from what I've read and researched, there were still minor skirmishes in the region um, between the ethnic groups that that existed there, but it was for things that they had been fighting for for centuries, which was which was land. And then all of a sudden, when the settlers arrived, they had initially the American Colonization Society had offered to buy land from some of the existing groups there, and they were turned down several times. And then uh, one of the the chiefs of a local village agreed and, and sold land to them. The popular narrative is that somehow the American Liberians went back and sort of took the land and conquered, but actually the first wave of land was purchased from the indigenous groups. And then, of course, after that, they joined the fight for more land and expansion. And so that was either bought through negotiations or they would have skirmishes as well. And then they had technology, they had money. So you see that quickly within the region, there was a system of social stratification that privileged them. And there was endemic national favoritism for a very long time. Um, But there was resistance among Native groups. And then what you also find is that regardless of what they were going through as Native groups and newer settlers who were Black were returning, that when their borders were infringed upon, there was a sense of mobilization and they did fight together. In the book, it is the imperialists who are featured are the French, um, but the British, they were, as I said, just north in Sierra Leone. And they, at one point, actually put their flag on Liberian land and the ethnic groups and the settlers came together to resolve that. Um, And so it's an interesting, I think, experiments or an interesting look at what what happens in a space where people who are all disenfranchised come together and form somewhat of a country. It doesn't mean that it's going to be perfect or any sort of utopia. That's not what Black solidarity is. It meant, I think, for them that they would just have the freedom to figure out some of their um, dynamics and differences on their own without some other group, imperialists, colonialists, or otherwise coming and letting them know how they should govern and how they should treat each other. Um, and so the in my writing of the book, and, and I hope in the reading of the book as well, it is an exploration into that nuance. All three of the main characters, as we've talked about, have certain characteristics, certain powers, shall we say. And you've alluded to the idea that, you know, often this you know, represents the things that have happened to black bodies over the years. But at the same time, we do also, as you alluded to earlier as well, live in a particular time when superhero stories are incredibly popular in in popular yeah. culture. I wondered, like, on a wider level, if you if you have a, a sort of opinion as to why that might be. Um, so, I mean, the, when when art marries commerce, it becomes something else. When my my books sold in December 2015, and we received a lot of no's because they were saying, ah, there aren't strong comps unless she could perhaps find a way to make it a young adult novel because you usually find fantasy and speculative fiction more in young adult than you do in literary fiction. 
uh, it was an indie publisher that finally picked it up in the U.S. But then in 2018, Black Panther came out and it was a huge, massive mammoth success. And because I think um, these mediums, they sort of look to each other for inspiration and really pull from each other, that being like literature and the film industry, then there was proof that that genre would be successful at a film level. And then the implication was that it would happen in books as well. So fast forward to a year later, a year and a half later, and you find that many of the books that are selling now have that fantastic or specific element. These books that are being written by African and diaspora writers, South Asian writers, um, Latinx writers um, are really becoming popular. So I would say that it's just the wave of what happened in Hollywood with Black Panther. I think that it also has to do with more voices having a door. I mean, we we have, as you mentioned, there was Jesmyn Ward and Colson Whitehead. And these were all examples. And these are all people, of course, Toni Morrison and Octavia Butler, who paved the way for these forms of storytelling. I think with access to education, to some of these programs that train us in writing, you have more Black writers, African diaspora writers, and Latinx writers and South Asian writers who are then being trained and having an opportunity to tell to tell these stories. And so, of course, it increases the number in the market and therefore the number that will be eventually sold and will will be available to the public. What other Liberian writers should we be looking out for? Um, I would say Vamba Sharif. Vamba Sharif has been been out for a few several years in the Netherlands. Um, he is he writes in Dutch. But he does have a couple of books in English, and um, I believe that he recently um, got an American agent and is hoping to enter the American market in the next couple of years. Also, Hawa Golakai. Um, she is a thriller and crime fiction writer. Um, she also has a short essay that was in Granta recently. Um, and then if you are into poetry, our renowned poet, her name is Patricia Jabe Wesley, and her work is available online. I, right now she's with the Penn State system and, and uh, publishes a lot of books through Penn State. Brilliant. So to finish off, can I get you to, to read us a bit of She Would Be King? Sure, sure. So I'm going to be reading to you from, this is a, a confrontation between the heroine Bessa and uh, someone who she loves. Bessa heard the shrub ruffle at the opening to the lake. Alarmed, she turned, but was so far into the water that she could not see. When she reached the shore, she heard the bush move again, and she followed the sound but found no one near it. Mia, she shouted. Mia, she shouted again, rupturing the night with her accusation. Whoever it was was a coward, and she wanted them to know. Bessa returned to the lake and sat on the shore as her breathing settled. Mia? asked the voice, deep and incensed. Mm, she sighed, ignoring him. Safwa fumed at her charge. Calling a poro man a coward was punishable by death. Bessa did not care. Stan, Safwa said angrily. When she stood and faced him, and his eyes caught hers, she recognized his bravery to be true. Bessa suddenly felt drained of all energy. His eyes were brown. Bessa at once wondered what color her eyes were, instantly conscious of everything around her. Mia? he asked again, even more angrily than the first time. Bessa knew he could not kill her and did not care if he could. She nodded. Mia, go take your ma to go feed you? 
May I go back when your ma die to see you all right? May I do that? He asked. She swallowed what felt like sharp stones. Poro do that, Ineso? He continued. Bessa's heart sank at his words. He had done what he had promised. He was king and indeed the head of the Poro, and now the most powerful man in the village. The darkness of her curse was powerful, but not as powerful as his title, his bravery. And still, whose bravery is not provoked by darkness? Was she that far removed? He breathed as though a part of him wanted to slap her face, while the other part wanted to touch his mouth to her blackness, test it for consistency, try what he knew was more than just a spirit, whose flesh and blood stood before him more rife and sweet than they who refuted it. Two stood in the night, silent, never touching. Just before morning, Safwa turned away from Bessa and returned to the village. Bessa watched until he was out of sight and then followed him until she reached the house where the old man and woman sat sleeping with their eyes wide open. When they awoke, Bessa watched them together. Their synchronization made her hollow with loneliness. She reached inside for thoughts of the forest and animals, for remnants of the lick's icy chills, but none could come to her rescue. Outside the window, Safwa was running around the village circle with his son, with no sane of the previous night, no lake, no extended stare. I'm dead, Bessa said to the couple, who sat monotonously during their days, waiting for sick villagers to knock on their door. Hmm, the old woman answered, smiling. I live in. I'm not spirit. Bessa persisted and stared out the window. The couple laughed. Mm-hmm, the old woman said, continuing to chew her tobacco. You live in now. Now you alive, she said. Every night when the medicine man and woman went to sleep, Bessa went to the lake. Every night, Safwa followed her and watched her through the bush. He had kept his childhood promise that he would protect her, that she was no different. She trusted the sound of the waves, the illumination of night before anything else. Bessa heard the voice coming from behind the bushes in that deep certainty. She looked toward the bush, toward the siren. Safwa sang to her. She touched her mouth as his voice came to her on the backs of those night flies, resting on her shoulders, licking her skin. We have nothing, but we have God. We have nothing, but we have each other. She sang with him, trusting him, until morning came. So I've been talking to where to more. We've been talking about her debut novel, She Would Be King, which is out in the UK from one from Pushkin Press. Wayatu, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you, Neil. What a great conversation. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.